0: Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. and Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. To the Mount of Olives. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. How many of you have experienced the Costco curse? What is the Costco curse, you ask? Well, it's what happens when you buy an item, especially a food item at Costco, it seems so great initially, but after a while, you you just don't really want it anymore. After your 20th peanut butter protein bar, or your 11th cup of peach yogurt, or your 7th bowl of spicy ramen, your initial enthusiasm for the product has waned. It was great for a while, but you're over it now. And I think most Costco members especially those who who don't have large families, feel that way quite often. There are some great products at Costco, but it's just too much of a good thing sometimes. And yet there are still some products at Costco that you can probably buy and eat forever. For me, it is crunchy grapes and unsulfured dried mango slices. Every time I venture into Costco, I'm tempted to buy those two things. I don't think I have ever tired of eating of their grapes or their dried mangoes. Last night, after dinner, we had some of those grapes. They were delicious. Sometimes, familiarity with a thing breeds contempt. But other times, familiarity can breed delight. Today, at the end of our service, we're going to eat a, a wafer and drink some juice as we observe the Lord's Supper. But I wonder... What do those elements breed for you? The Lord's Supper is something that we observe regularly as a church. Those of you who have been Christians for a while have probably participated in it hundreds of times. And sometimes it has been great for your soul. You, you have felt a, a closeness to Christ and, and to his church. You have been led to really think of Jesus' sacrifice and, and to praise him for it. You, you felt real encouragement in your spiritual walk from having observed communion. But if you're honest with yourself, there are probably many times that you have approached the Lord's Supper like the 21st peanut butter protein bar in the box. You you don't have anything against it. You'd even recommend it to others. But it's just not that special to you anymore. You don't have a lot of personal enthusiasm for it. Your, Your familiarity hasn't bred contempt so much as it has just bred complacency. And I fear that many of you have come to church this morning in that category. Now, whether you knew that we would be observing the Lord's Supper today or not, the thought of participating in it doesn't do much for you. you know, it's something you, you know you should do as a Christian, but it's not something you could honestly say that you, you look forward to doing. And if that's you... I want to try to help you today. I want to help you recover or or perhaps even discover for the first time a love for the Lord's Supper that can only come when you understand the depth of meaning that lies behind it. The, The Lord's Supper is something that you will inevitably become familiar with if you're a Christian. And that's because the Lord commands us to observe it regularly. But my hope is that it won't breed contempt or it won't breed complacency in your life. Rather, I hope that it will result in great delight and benefit to your soul. Today, we're going to look at Jesus' Last Supper. And we're going to find three aspects of that supper that should help you understand why we observe the Lord's Supper. Okay, we're going to look at three aspects of the Last Supper that help us appreciate the Lord's Supper. And as we consider these aspects, I trust that those of you who love and look forward to the Lord's Supper will be encouraged and affirmed. I also hope that those of you who have grown indifferent to it will develop uh, an appetite for it. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that you will understand better why we Christians eat these little pieces of bread and drink out of these little cups at church. Hopefully you will understand why These symbols are so meaningful to us and be challenged about what they can mean for you. First, I want you all to notice that the last supper of Jesus was a planned supper. It was a planned supper. As we arrive at verse 12 of chapter 14 in Mark, we are nearing the end of Jesus' time on earth. Mark has shown us in this gospel that Jesus is someone with authority. He has led us through one incident after another in Jesus' ministry to show us that he has authority because he is God in human flesh. And while many were attracted to that never-before-seen kind of authority, there were others who were quite opposed to it. And in particular, the leaders of Israel were ready to arrest and to kill him. But we learned at the beginning of chapter 14 that they were afraid of causing an uproar among the crowds, that had gathered to Jerusalem during this time of the year to celebrate the Passover. Jesus knew this. He was not unaware of their opposition to him. He had been predicting that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes in Jerusalem for quite a while. But it was finally becoming a reality. And in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14, Mark told us that Judas had begun the process of betraying him. Jesus knew that his time on the earth was coming to an end. He knew that this day would come. He came to earth for this very reason. He came with the intention of dying. But he had, still had some things that he needed to do. And one of those things was to have one last Passover meal with his disciples. And so in verse 12, we read that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, I mentioned this last time, but the Jewish Passover was celebrated on the 14th and 15th of the month of Nisan. It was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread that occurred from Nisan 15th through the 21st. And so together, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread would run from Nisan 14th through the 21st. And and this week-long celebration was often referred to as one event. In, in John's Gospel, he often refers to the whole week as just the Passover. Here, Mark uses the term unleavened bread. Okay, so the first day here in Mark, chapter 14, verse 12, is, is the first day of the whole week-long celebration. It was the 14th of Nisan. This means it was now Thursday of Passion Week. Now, as the time for the Passover meal was drawing close, the disciples asked Jesus where they should get ready to eat. That was an important question because Jerusalem was packed. Getting a dinner reservation was quite difficult. And so Jesus responded by sending out two of his disciples to prepare things. Luke 22.8 tells us that those disciples were Peter and John. And they were instructed to go into Jerusalem because the Passover was only meant to be celebrated within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 8, give those instructions. It was expected that Jews in the city would open up their homes to other pilgrims to to use in order that they might celebrate the feast properly. And so Jesus' instruction to go into the city was likely something that his disciples expected. But what he said next wasn't. He told his disciples in verse 13 to look for a man carrying a jar of water. This was surprising because carrying water in a jar like that was something that women and slaves would do. But in God's perfect plan, this water-carrying man would stand out from everyone else so that Peter and John could recognize him during the festivities and in the midst of the crowds. Jesus then told them to follow this guy to whatever house he went into. And Jesus said that the owner of the house would show them a large upper room that was furnished. There would probably be a table and some cushions already on the ground. And that was where Peter and John were to prepare the Passover meal. Many people think that this was actually Mark's family home. Um, We don't know for sure. Could have been. We know that the disciples did gather at his parents' home um, at other times, so it's possible. In any case, these were somewhat odd instructions, but Peter and John followed Jesus' instructions and Mark writes in verse 16 that the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What that means is that they must have made sure that they obtained a lamb and slaughtered it at the temple at the right time of the day and then had its blood thrown on the altar. They must have made sure that the lamb was roasted. They would do this on these pomegranate kind of spittles or sticks and that there was unleavened bread there. There were bitter wine or bitter herbs and wine and a traditional fruit dipping sauce. They made sure all these things were ready for the Lord. And Jesus had had his last supper all planned out. Whether he somehow arranged it all beforehand or he just knew that there would be a man carrying water in a jar who would go to a house in a large upper room because he had divine foreknowledge, we actually don't know. But this Last Supper was happening according to his plan. All this didn't just materialize through coincidence. This meal didn't just sneak up on him. Jesus had planned to be in Jerusalem at this time, and he knew that he wanted to eat this final Passover meal with his disciples in a particular place. And he planned it so that the location of this Last Supper would be hidden. Only Peter and John, his two closest followers, or two of his closest followers, only they were to know. Why? Well, because Jesus knew that Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. He didn't want Judas to know the location so that he could reveal it to the chief priests. He wasn't ready to die just yet. He was ready to die, but he had to have this last meal with his followers. He, he had things that he still needed to tell them and still needed to, to teach them. Right? This Last Supper was planned. Jesus also planned the time of this Last Supper to coincide with uh, Passover. Passover. Well, why is this important? Well, obviously because the Passover has so much meaning associated with it. It's a meal of hope. It's a meal of remembrance. It was a meal to help the Jews remember God's deliverance of them out of Egypt. And it was a meal to help them anticipate God's future deliverance of them through a Messiah. Jesus planned this meal so that after he died, his disciples would look back and understand that the lamb that had been sacrificed pointed to him, the ultimate lamb of God. And when they would think of how the firstborn of every Egyptian family died in order that they might be freed, they would understand that Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, died in order to free us. There was so much symbolism in the Passover meal which pointed to Jesus, and it made it appropriate for him to plan this last meal at this particular time. And so this was a planned supper. It happened just the way God designed it to happen because his plan of redemption was being carried out. I want you to notice next that Jesus' last supper was also a sobering supper. It was a planned supper, and it was a sobering supper. A sobering supper. We see this in verses 17 through 21. Verse 17 says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they got situated, we learn in verse, thir- or verse 18 that they were reclining at the table that was customary for people to do at special meals. Especially during the Passover meal, there was an an extra bonus or kind of instruction or expectation that you would recline because reclining was a a nod to the Israelites' freedom from slavery in Egypt. Slaves often stood to eat, but free men reclined. And so Jesus and his disciples, like all the other Jews in Jerusalem, were reclining at table that evening and eating. Now, as the head of the meal, if Jesus was following custom, he would have begun it with a blessing. Then he would have had everyone drink the first of four symbolic cups of wine. Uh, The food would then be brought in lamb and herbs and bread and fruit sauce. And and the story of God redeeming Israel from Egypt would be told through those elements. And some of the halal psalms, those are Psalms 113 to 118, would be sung. And then uh, another cup of wine would be drunk. And it was likely around this time that Jesus dropped a bomb. He said one of those things that that is so shocking that it causes everyone to just stop what they're doing. In verse 18 we read that Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus had already predicted his death and being delivered up in Jerusalem, but but this is the first time that the disciples, Lord, it would be one of them. And notice their response in verse 19. They they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? The the, the disciples were were troubled by what Jesus said. They, They started to question themselves. Is it me? That's what Peter thought and John and And James, and and on down the line, notice that they didn't question Jesus' statement. They didn't challenge his assertion that one of them would betray him. Instead, they questioned themselves. The reason was that their faith was still weak. And in a matter of hours, they would demonstrate that. They would all abandon Jesus when he was arrested. You see, in this Last Supper, Jesus forced his disciples to really confront their own hearts he forced them to perform an an honest self-evaluation of their faith. This final meal was a sobering meal. It was a gut check. It was a reminder that though the Son of God was resolute in trusting his Father's plan to send him to his cross, as his followers, we are prone to abandoning him. And that's true even if we have been close to him before. Notice in verse 20 that, Jesus responded to his disciples with the additional statement that the one who would betray him was one who dipped bread into the dish with him. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to tell all the other disciples to look for the special dipper at the table. What he was saying is that the betrayer would be one of them. He would be one who shared close fellowship with them, with Jesus, someone who Who dipped bread into the same dish as Jesus, one who shared some of the the most intimate moments with Jesus. We do learn, however, in John chapter 13, verse 26, that Jesus specifically dipped a piece of bread and gave it to Judas shortly after saying this. In that culture, doing something like that was a gesture of friendship, it was a gesture of acceptance. Jesus was reaching out to Judas until the very end. But Judas had hardened his heart, his mind was set, his decision had been made. He was intent on betraying Jesus. And so Jesus said to his disciples in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This verse tells us two important things. One, once again, we learned that this was all in God's plan. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. God wasn't trying to rearrange things at the last moment. This had been predicted in the Scriptures for hundreds of years. Like David in Psalm 41.9, Jesus was betrayed by a close friend who ate bread with him. This was so he could be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was going as... It was written of him. And God had planned all this. But even so, Judas was still responsible for his actions. Jesus said, Woe to him. He said it would better, it would have been better for him to have not been born. But sometimes we struggle to understand how God can be sovereign yet hold us responsible still. That is hard to understand. In some ways, it is a mystery. But the Bible affirms both of those truths over and over again. God can be in control of everything and yet still rightly hold us accountable for our actions. That's because we, we make real choices and decisions. And we often decide to do what is evil in God's eyes, but he is not surprised by that. Instead, he uses that evil to accomplish something that is ultimately good. Here in this passage, we see that God allowed Judas to betray Jesus so that the scriptures might be fulfilled and we might be saved, but he would also hold Judas accountable for that betrayal. And so this was indeed a sobering supper. It was sobering in the fact that it revealed that the betrayer of Jesus would be one of his closest friends. It was sobering because Judas continued to reject the kindness and overtures of his Lord. And it was sobering because the potential to do what Judas did lies in every one of our hearts. The Last Supper shows us that we are all weak. In our sinful nature, we all have the potential to turn away from Jesus. Our allegiance to him can waver, but but by drawing near to the Lord's table, we are presented with an opportunity to humble ourselves, to, to receive what Jesus offers to us again to to make a sober assessment of ourselves, to, to diligently ask ourselves if we really want to be in fellowship with Jesus. You get to examine yourself to see if you have truly repented of your sins against God, to see whether you actually desire to live a new life, and to see if you really believe that Jesus has the ability to save you from the judgment of a holy God. The Last Supper is not only a reminder of God's purposeful plan in sending His Son to the cross, but it is a sobering reminder of our need to cling closely to Him. The Last Supper was a planned supper, it was a sobering supper, and it was a nourishing supper. It was a nourishing supper. As we get to verse 22... It's likely that Judas had left the room by this time. John 13 tells us that once Judas received that special morsel of bread from Jesus, he left the room. He left the meal. And what is significant about the potential timing of his departure is that it seems to have taken place before the end of the meal when Jesus turned the Last Supper into the Lord's Supper. And this seems to show us that the Lord's Supper was meant only for true followers of Christ. What Jesus would say and institute in the following verses was meant only for those who truly believed in him. Now let's look at what happened next. Okay, in verse 22, we learn that as they continued to eat, Jesus took some of the unleavened bread at the meal. And he set a blessing for it. And then he broke the bread to distribute it. It's not so much like he was saying his body was going to be broken because his bones actually didn't break. But really that breaking of the bread is a way for Jesus to say, I'm just distributing it. I'm breaking it to distribute it to all of you. This is for all of you. And he said, take, this is my body. When Jesus said that the bread was his body, he was saying that it represented the life that he was going to sacrifice for them. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, Luke records that he said, This is my body, which is given for you. It was given for them. Jesus wanted his disciples to associate the bread of the Passover meal with himself. He was the bread of life who gave up his life for us. At the Lord's table, he wanted his disciples, and he wants us to receive the gift of himself. And then it says in verse 23 that he took a cup. And this was likely the third cup of the Passover meal. And when he had given things, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus was pointing his disciples to his blood that would soon be shed. Being poured out for many is a reference to the Messiah in Isaiah 53 12, who would pour out his life unto death. Jesus did this for the many who would benefit from his atoning sacrifice, and his blood was critical for establishing a covenant relationship with his people. Exodus 24 tells us that Moses used the blood of animals to establish the Mosaic covenant. In a, in a similar way, the blood of Jesus would serve to establish the new and better covenant that he had come to inaugurate. Through his blood, we can now be reconciled to God through faith. Now, it's worth mentioning that Jesus meant for the bread and the wine to be symbols. Though some, like the Roman Catholic Church, believe that those elements actually become the body and the blood of Jesus, there's no indication that Jesus was speaking literally here. In the context of the Passover meal, the disciples were accustomed to the symbolic elements of the celebration. They would have understood that Jesus was still there with them in bodily form. He didn't suddenly morph into a morsel. And to actually drink blood would have been appalling for a devout Jew because of the Old Testament prohibitions against it. Plus, Jesus didn't even tell the disciples what the wine in the cup represented until after they drank. So there is no biblical justification for elements in the Lord's Supper being more than just symbols. But they are critical symbols meant to show how Jesus sacrificially offered himself up for us by shedding his blood in order that our sin might be forgiven and we might be brought into a new covenant relationship with God through faith in him. Now, in a traditional Passover meal, there would have been one cup of wine left. Remember I said there were four cups. Now, Some believe that the fourth and final cup Represented life in the promised land for the Jews. But Jesus seemed to have avoided drinking that cup. And that's because that promise would still have to wait for the Christian. He needed to first drink the cup of God's wrath at the cross. So Jesus said in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This, this Last Supper of Jesus reminds us that salvation is here. The new covenant had been inaugurated at the cross, but the new wine is still to come. Right? The kingdom of God still awaits its complete fulfillment. Now, The wine that flows from a redeemed world is something that we still long for because in that day, when, when we drink with Jesus, there will no longer be any more, is it I, questions. There will be no worry or sorrow or fear of betrayal, but rather newness of life and joy and intimacy and confidence in Jesus. Now we know from John's gospel that Jesus continued to instruct his disciples in the upper room. John 14 through 17 discusses all that, but Mark skips us to the end of the meal in verse 26. He tells us that Jesus and the disciples closed out this Last Supper with a hymn. Probably, again, one of the halal psalms. Perhaps Psalm 118, which is what the Jews would sing at the end of the Passover meal. And then they left the house in Jerusalem to go back to the Mount of Olives. That's how the the Last Supper came to a close. It wasn't just another Passover meal. It was really a transformation of the Passover the Passover was meant for the Jews to look back upon God's deliverance and to look forward to their future Messiah, but he had come now. The Passover is no longer necessary. Instead, a new supper with new meaning was being instituted. Luke 22:19 19 says that Jesus told his disciples to do this, to continue to do this in remembrance of him. He knew that he was going away, but he wanted to establish a meal to remind his disciples for generations to come of what he has done so that his death and and presence would be a living reality in our lives. The Lord's Supper isn't simply a memorial meant to trigger some brief thoughts about a past event. It is meant to make that event present again, to motivate you to live for the Lord. It's a supper that is meant to nourish the disciples of Jesus. Jesus commanded us to eat bread and to drink wine. You know, eating and drinking are what living people do. We need to eat and drink to be strengthened and energized and supplied. And This is what the Lord's Supper does for us spiritually. It is meant to strengthen us spiritually. It's meant to refresh our souls. It's, it's meant to energize us in our walk. At the Lord's Supper... You are to to look back to Christ's sacrifice and be nourished by the fact that he has redeemed you from your sin. He died for you because there is a little bit of Judas in every one of you. There is a desire in you to turn from following Jesus to do what you think is right apart from him. But even though you are a sinner, Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you. You are covered and you are cleansed. You are brought into covenant relationship with him. You have communion with him. If you feel far from Christ, this meal is for you. It's meant for you to draw close to him. At the Lord's Supper, you're you're not just meant to look back, but you're also meant to look forward as well to the day when Christ returns and, and be nourished by the hope that he brings. The kingdom of God will be revealed one day in all its glory and Christ will be at the center. God's plan will not fail. You will be with him in glory. And so if your soul is troubled or discouraged by the world, if you come into church today or if you have come into the church today just discouraged by all the news that has been happening in recent weeks, the Lord's Supper is meant to turn your attention to the hope that you have. Jesus is coming, new wine, is coming, you will drink with him again. Don't just look back, but look forward. And at the Lord's Supper, you are meant to look around at each other and be nourished by the community of saints that is is saved by the same sacrificial life and shed blood of our Savior. We are united by that. Though we have differences, we find encouragement in the fact that we are united around the one person that matters most, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so if you feel isolated or maybe you feel distanced from the church, the Lord's Supper is meant to draw you back and and for you to eat with other saints and drink and say, I am united to this body of Christ. This is the family of God. I know that sometimes you can grow a little too familiar with the Lord's Supper. I feel that same way at times. We all can fall prey to the communion curse. But this supper that we get to observe together is the result of God's perfect plan in sending his son to the cross for us. It is a a supper meant to sober us and remind us that every one of us is a sinner who needs to draw close to our Savior in faith. And it is supper meant to nourish us as we consider all that the Lord has done for us, as we hope in all that he will do for this world and as we join together to wait for him as his family. So this morning, let's take the bread and let's take the cup with renewed appreciation and joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we see your sovereignty at work in the events of the Passion Week, and even in the institution of the Lord's Supper at this Passover meal, your son had planned out every detail in conjunction with your will for him to go to the cross. And he did this all for our sake, for our benefit. He didn't just die on the cross for our benefit, but he instituted this Lord's Supper for our benefit. He knew that we would be forgetful. He knew that, that we would be, be Attempted to, to not think anything special of his sacrifice for us. He knew that we would forget. He knew that sometimes we would grow distanced from the church and discouraged by the world and, and feel far from you. And he instituted this supper so that we might draw close to him once again. So that we might hope once again. And so that we might be united in faith once again with his people. Oh Lord, help us to eat and drink for our nourishment and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.